Well, like I said, we are continuing, you are continuing as a church in the gospel according to St. John. Um, and it's good to remind ourselves from time to time as we're journeying through a text um, of, of three things, three foundational things. What's the author? What's his audience? And what was his intention? Who wrote it? Why did they write it? Who do they write it to? Well, John was an apostle of Christ. Not just an apostle, but he was part of his inner circle of three. And not just that, but he had such an intimacy with Christ that he referred to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. He says that six times. That's that's what he named himself. Who are you? I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. That's awesome. That's awesome. And he wrote a biography about Jesus, and we have it, and we're going to read it from it today. So this should blow your mind. That's who wrote it. Who did he write it to? He certainly did write it to Jews, but we know for certain as well it was also to Gentiles, the, the non-Jewish, which is really good news for, good news for us because most of us are probably not Jewish by ancestry. How do we know that he was writing uh, to Gentiles? Well, for one, he kind of helps us out with some of the Jewish grammar. Like he says, so Jesus was a rabbi. That, that means teacher. I know you probably I don't know what that means. Um, he also interprets um, Aramaic into Greek for us, which you wouldn't have to do for a Jew. And so it is astounding that we have this book today that's been written to us. And then why did he write? Well, John wanted us to have an absolute clarity about why he wrote. John 20, 31. These things are written. That's helpful. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the whole reason John wrote, was to lift up Jesus Christ, that we might see him as not just good teacher, but son of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that you could see him as this and find salvation in his name. That is John's heart. That's my heart this morning. Well, last week, in a sense, we got the the starter's pistol for the messianic mission of Jesus. So he lived his life through age 30, probably relatively normal. And then now he starts his messianic mission. And last week, he entered the scene with verse 11 from chapter 2 by performing his first sign. Jesus did it at Cana in Galilee. And he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. So the the disciples are starting to realize there is something completely different going on here. This is not just a rabbi, but this guy turns water into wine. He's on mission now. So we're continuing there. Verse 13 of our text today. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So the fact that he tells us that the Passover is for the Jews, once again, lets us know that he's trying to help us out here. You wouldn't have to tell that to a Jewish person what the Passover is. Well, so a quick refresher on the Passover. It was the festival that commemorated the salvation that God gave the Israelites from their slavery under Pharaoh. 
God sent his angel of death to strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, except those who had taken blood from a spotless lamb and put it over the threshold of their house. If the angel of death saw that, he passed over them. They were, they were saved from this wrath of God. And because we are so prone to forget God's salvation, God commanded them to do this. So they had done this for over a thousand years. In Exodus twelve twenty seven, we see this, this institution that God is saying, this shall be an annual liturgy for you. When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Why, why, do, we, why do we do this? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people in Israel and Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Passover was an annual liturgy for the Jews because we need to constantly remember God's salvation. That's why we gather weekly. That's why this is so important, so that we can remind ourselves of what God has done to save us and to bow and to worship. So now moving on to verse 14. So he's going up to Jerusalem to the Passover. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and and the money changers were sitting there. So Jesus made his way up to Jerusalem and comes into the temple courtyard. And he finds essentially an impromptu marketplace that has been set up, waiting for the Jewish pilgrims. Now, this is something Jesus would have seen many times before. He's probably been to 18 Passovers. And this is actually a service that's being provided because they need to bring sacrifices, but they're coming a long way. And so to not have to carry a sheep is helpful, right? And there's going to be a massive influx of people who need exactly what you're selling. So this is... This is a great place to set up. I mean, this is, this is a great business technique. Seems fine, right? Well, how will Jesus respond to this? That's the question. Verse 15. And making a whip of cords. Making. My lawyer wife tells me that means premeditated. He made a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. Wow. Jesus absolutely lost it. So you have to to get this picture in your mind. This is strange. Imagine you're in the temple courts. Maybe you just arrived with your family. And then you hear a large commotion behind you and you turn and you see a man chasing cows and sheep with a whip. And then he puts the whip down and goes and turns over tables and money is going everywhere. People are cursing him. Babies are crying. This is a total commotion as Passover is beginning. Well, you would think you have two options here. You're seeing this, okay? So you with your family are observing this. You would think this man is either mad or he saw something that I missed, right? Those are the two options. Either he's, he's crazy or he saw something that I missed. Well, we know that Jesus is not crazy. 
And so I'm going to argue that it was the latter. Jesus saw something. He saw a latent blasphemy that everyone else had become apparently inoculated to. Once again, Jesus had been to the Passover probably 18 times up until this point. This wasn't new to him, but something was new. This was the first time he had seen the Passover through the eyes of the Messiah. And he saw something that detonated something inside of him. And he hated it. What was that? So this is where we're going to go for the rest of our time. We're going to put the lens of the Messiah on and try to see what in the world is going on here and what in the world that means for us. Why did Jesus cause such an incredible commotion on this day? Number one, because the Messiah came to bring a refining fire to the temple. The Messiah came. It's one of the reasons he came was to bring a refining fire to the temple. Verses 16 through 17. And he told those who sold the pigeons, right? So he just chased them out and flipped over the tables. I mean, you have to imagine them. He walks over, like, shuddering behind their cages. He says to them, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So they saw that, and they said, I remember that. God had said that will happen. So here's the issue. Here's the reason Jesus had such an explosion. His father's house had been made a house of trade. That's that's exactly what he says. Now, I know Scripture doesn't need our affirmation at all, but you have to ask yourself, Does making a whip and chasing people around seem like an appropriate response to selling the sacrifices? Like, seem in proportion? Am I the only one who asked that question? I mean, that seems kind of wild. Well, if it does, if this seems overly dramatic, I want to humbly offer one reason why that might be the case. We have become so accustomed to God's grace, so used to his presence, that we have forgotten the weightiness and splendor and complete otherness of God's holy presence. See, the reality that we live on this side of the cross is an incredible grace. We have access to God whenever we want. The Jews would have had no concept of that. You could only meet God at the temple, but only in the Holy of Holies, but only one person could go in there, the high priest, and only on the Day of Atonement. And if you approach God kind of willy-nilly or kind of had a cavalier strut about you when it came to the sacrifices for the atonement of sins, God wasn't happy about that. Sinners cannot dwell upon the holy gaze of God without dying. In Leviticus 10, Aaron, who was the high priest, his sons, Nadab and Abihu, offered incense with unauthorized, or some translations call it strange fire, And God killed them on the spot. They were goofing off in front of the altar. And Aaron, understandably, was not happy with God about this. Leviticus 10.3. But Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. 
in the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And Aaron remained silent. Or 2 Samuel 6, 7. They were transporting the, the Ark of the Covenant, and they weren't to touch the Ark, but the oxen stumbled. And so a guy named Uzzah put his hand up to try to stabilize it. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the Ark of God. And this is not just the Old Testament. The New Testament has grave warnings about those who have no regard for God's holiness, who are completely cavalier about the need for forgiveness, about our standing before a holy God. In Hebrews 10, he says, Remember, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So whenever we recapture a reverence for the holiness and splendor of God's presence, then Jesus' response starts to make sense. These people, the one who's, who were selling the animals, they were selling it because a sacrifice had to be made for sin, a blood offering. But they just kind of saw it as a business opportunity. It was nothing to them. They didn't have any regard for the temple or the holiness of God. They just saw it as an opportunity to make money. There was an influx of people. Clearly, it didn't sink in that the ceremony was to celebrate God's wrath passing over them. They didn't realize they were the ones who would need this covering. Well, the Messiah came to bring a refining fire to the temple that day. And the prophet Malachi, over 400 years before, told us about this moment. Malachi 3, 1 through 3. He writes, Behold, I send my messenger, We know that's John the Baptist. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand before him when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And then he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And Jesus was fulfilling this prophecy. He walked onto the scene through the eyes of the Messiah and saw this cavalier disregard for the sanctity of what was taking place, for the holiness of God. And he came to refine that. It's a question. Do we live a life of reverence before God? Do we live a life of reverence before God? Do we stand amazed at his grace or do I just presume on his kindness? See, the cultural atmosphere in the text encouraged a lax, unsanctimonious, casual um, kind of presence concerning the things of God. We have to ask, friends, especially in L.A., has the culture bred that in us? Do we have a a reverence, a fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Proverbs say. So Jesus came to refine it, to say enough to this atmosphere of casual blasphemy that had infected the temple. And that is why zeal for his father's house consumed him. So the, the disciples saw it, and it's, kind of illuminated his identity. But there was another group there as well, the Jews, the religious folk. 
And it didn't illuminate his identity. It, it obscured his identity. First, the Messiah came to bring a refining fire to the temple. And not just that. Even more, the Messiah came to revolutionize the temple. And this is the bombshell that he dropped on the religious people. Verses 18 through 21. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. You could try to destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Wow. So you can, you can almost feel this tension. Jesus had just caused a huge disruption, chasing out cattle and turning over tables, and the, the disciples knew that this was prophetic fulfillment. But the Jews are saying, in essence, you better be able to explain this. Disrupting the Passover and desecrating the temple and calling it your father's house. Where in the world do you get off? Nobody calls God father. Yet. No. He's not going to walk away. Who's going to break eye contact first? Is Jesus going to be like, ooh, that was a bit much. Disciples, let's get get going. Mm Mm-mm. No, he's not even going to yield an inch. In fact, he's going to double down. He's going to up the ante, and he's going to pour gas on the fire. You want a sign of my authority? You want proof that this is my jurisdiction? I'll tell you what. Why don't you try to destroy the whole temple? Because if you did, I could raise it up in three days. Well, it's hard to overemphasize just how provocative this would have been. These are the words of an insane man. They must have thought, right? But they're in an awkward situation because he doesn't seem insane other than the whole chasing cattle thing. He has disciples. He's a teacher. He he doesn't seem insane. And he's getting an audience, and that's not good. So what are we going to do? So they, they press him a bit. They say, well... This temple was built in 46 years. So how will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking in code here, and they completely missed it. Now, this is interesting, and I didn't see this until I was studying this text. John does tell us what he meant. But notice, Jesus never says what he meant. He didn't answer them. Jesus says, well, he was talking about his body, and so th- or John says that, and so we think, oh, well, that must have been pretty obvious. Jesus never said that to them. He just kind of let that question hang in the air and then fall to the ground. Why? Perhaps. The truth is their hearts were too hard to embrace this Messiah, and he wasn't going to get caught up in a fool's game of back and forth. Because this Messiah, the real Jesus, can only be received by the lowly and the needy, right? Blessed are those who realize their spiritual poverty. I'll come close to them. 
not those who derive power through religion. The Messiah didn't fit the mold and was a threat to be silenced. And that's why Jesus goes straight for the jugular of their idol, the idol of false religion and self-righteousness. Because remember, if God's presence dwells in one place as far as human connection, and you hold the keys to that, the Pharisees, that's a lot of power, right? So Jesus goes for the jugular. You have no power here. Because the Messiah came to revolutionize the temple. What does that mean? Well, he came to spread the good news that God's presence will no longer be closed up in a holy closet. No, no. The sun of salvation is now rising on the dark earth and the light of the glory of God's presence will start pervading everywhere. This is no more a niche religious clique. The Pharisees didn't realize that God's presence was literally standing right in front of them. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God now with us. With these cryptic words from Christ, he is inaugurating a new day. He's giving us good news for Gentiles like us. The best news. I am now the temple. I am now the presence of God come to earth. I am now the access point to the Father. Jesus will say this more explicitly just a few chapters later. In John 10, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will be saved. And we'll go in and out. He'll find a pasture there. You know, some say, well, isn't it arrogant for Christians to claim that they have the only way to God? Have you heard that? I've thought that before. And it kind of makes sense on, on the surface until you really realize who Jesus is. The fact that we have any way to a holy God is incredible. He sent us his son. What else could we want? And so Christians aren't those who are, are proud of having the only way to God. We are beggars who found bread who say we found a path to God. That's what Christianity is. It's not a, a boast. It's a just overwhelming amazement that God has made a way of salvation through his very son coming to us. Come to me, anyone, and I will give you rest. You don't have to come with blood sacrifices. You have to come with a need, and I will be the sacrifice for you. This, friends, is the only requirement for coming to Christ and to getting caught up in the life of God for all of eternity, recognizing your great spiritual need, because Christ has already done all the work. He fulfilled the law perfectly for all of you. That, that, the catechism we had to read, how does that make you feel? You've got to do it perfectly. Well, luckily, that's not the only one. Christ fulfilled it perfectly for us. And he is willing to bend down and take off his cloak of righteousness and to wrap it around you. And before the judgment seat, say, he's with me and she's with me. It's amazing. Listen to Matthew 9, 13, maybe some of the sweetest words ever uttered. Go and learn what this means. This is Jesus talking. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. 
For I came not to call those who think they are righteous, but sinners. This is the gospel. This is the good news for people like me. Do you know you need a Savior? Christ's arms are open. The only sacrifice going forward now is a sacrifice of praise in response to God's unbelievable grace towards people like me. The Messiah came to bring a refining fire to the temple, but oh, so much more. He came to revolutionize how we think about the temple. And now we'll transition in the message and we'll make quicker work of these last two points. Number three, the Messiah's resurrection vindicated his testimony. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, spoiler alert, John just doesn't care. He's so excited. Chapter two, I'm like, really, John? It's amazing. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered, oh yes, he said that. And they believed the entirety of the scriptures, the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. See, this is fascinating. We know that in one sense, Jesus' identity was illuminated for them, but they didn't even get what he was talking about with the temple there. Rather, those words just haunted first century Palestine for three years. Why do I say that? Well, because we know that even at the cross, the words that he spoke in this courtyard were thrown in his face. I have it right here, Matthew 27. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, right, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Where'd they get that from? Save yourself if you are the son of God. Come down from the cross. Well, what they couldn't see then is that they were witnessing the destruction of the temple but it would most certainly be rebuilt. Rebuilt in the most glorious way nobody could have imagined. It would re- be rebuilt in three days through resurrection. And all the seeds that Jesus had planted with his words, John tells us, bloomed in vivid color in light of the resurrection. The resurrection became the Rosetta Stone that made sense of all the scriptures, all that the prophets have said, one who is going to come And he was the promised king who would crush the head of the serpent. It was Jesus, and the resurrection proved it. He was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of all the world if you would just come by faith. The resurrection proved it. He was both suffering servant and the Lord of all creation. How do we know? The resurrection proved it. And he was the promised Messiah who would build a bridge back to God. The resurrection proved it. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God find their yes in him. Indeed, he was the presence of God on earth. And the resurrection proved it. And John here is reminding us, friends, especially in a culture that values spirituality, that our faith is not an ambiguous spirituality. Rather, it is a movement of God that began in time and space 2,000 years ago after the physical resurrection of the man, 
Jesus Christ. It was belief in that historical event that filled these timid disciples with an indomitable courage that set the world on fire. That's why you're here today. Because they saw the resurrection and they couldn't get over it. And they lost their life proclaiming the glory of Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. Question. Do you have this hope? Do you believe in the deepest part of who you are that God raised Jesus from the dead? Remember again, this is why John wrote this gospel. Not just to tell us that the disciples believed so that you may believe and have eternal life. Is your hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because I'm telling you, friend, that is the answer to the deepest longing that you have. The one that gets kicked up when you hear that song or see that sunset or those moments before you go to bed or you hold your baby. Nothing on earth can truly satisfy. What that is, is longing. That's not the fulfillment. That's, ugh, I was made for something eternal and redemptive. The resurrection is the doorway to that. We long for resurrection. We can feel it in the bones of our soul. And he did rise from the dead. Our hope cannot be in relationships or in a job or in a bank account or comfort. All those idols will break your heart. You were made for something so much more. You were made to have eternal life with God forever, with Jesus Christ as the lamp. The Messiah came to bring a refining fire to the temple, even more to revolutionize the temple. The Messiah's resurrection vindicated his testimony. And number four, and with these concluding verses, the Messiah recognized the truth of man's heart. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. It's interesting. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So we know that Jesus didn't perform a sign for the Jews in in that moment today. Remember they said, what sign do you give us? He gave them that cryptic code. But apparently as the feast went on, he did perform signs and and people started to follow him. They, They were impressed and believing in him in a sense. Now, this seems like it'd be a good thing that Jesus is gaining more disciples, right? Well, no, apparently. Because Jesus knew this believing didn't go down to the core. This believing wasn't from the heart. It it was superficial in a sense. How do we know that? Well, because Jesus would not entrust himself. He would not give himself to those who believed in response to his signs. Why? Well, perhaps this is why. True belief, saving belief in Christ doesn't come simply by seeing what he can do and being impressed. Rather, true belief, saving belief, comes through seeing the truth of our own hearts, stained with sin, far from God, riddled with guilt and self-deception. And then seeing Jesus not as a great man, nor the greatest showman, 
but as the greatest savior for a sinner who desperately needs saving. Only to the cross I cling. Or to say it another way, we don't come to Jesus for fascination. We fall at his feet in need of salvation. This is the one to whom Jesus will entrust himself to. Come to me, who? All who are heavy laden, who recognize their spiritual poverty, and I will give you rest. It is a haunting thing, a sobering thing here, that one can believe in Jesus in a certain way, but not in a saving way. Jesus knew what was in man. The question is, do we know what's in man? Do we know the truth of our own hearts? Do we know our greatest need? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That's decidedly unfortunate that a lot of advice is follow your hearts in light of that. (laughs) But in the same prophetic book, we get the good news. I will give them a heart to know me. I will give them a new heart. For I am the Lord and they will be my people and I will be their God. This is our greatest need. We need a heart transplant, spiritually speaking. But we have the good news. Jesus came to give new hearts, to breathe life on dead hearts, to change our appetites, to give us a heart for God. Now we'll transition to the conclusion. Here's the amazing thing. In spite, or in light, rather, of all of this temple talk, right? So we have the actual temple in Jerusalem, and then Jesus redefines that. He says, I am the temple. But the moment Christ gives us new heart, his spirit takes up residence in us. And do you know what that means? Where is the temple now? You are the temple now of God. You are the place that God says, this is my home. This is the greatest news and the weightiest news at all as well. Why is that? because Jesus is still passionate about his temple. He's still passionate about sanctifying it and refining it to make it as beautiful as he intends it to be. It is a weighty thing to be the temple of God. It is not a small thing to have the spirit of the Almighty indwell you. This changes the way we see certain activities or certain things we applaud or certain identities we give to ourselves. This redefines everything. Paul in 1 Corinthians bends all of his apostolic power towards waking them up to this great reality. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, that's not a good thing. God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you now are that temple. Friends, I hope you hear my heart here. We don't clean ourselves up and say, ta-da. I think I swept enough, swiffered enough, Lord, you can come in now. There is nothing we can do to make ourselves an appropriate dwelling place. Christ has done everything. He has purified us completely if we place our faith in what he has done. But once we become the temple, he sets his gaze on us. And he has promised to make us an apt dwelling place for the Almighty. Oh, friends, God loves us more than we can know. And he is serious about holiness. 
because he is serious about eternal happiness. That's what that word means. To be holy is to be eternally happy. If you have another thought of what holiness is, you need to jettison it and fill it with what is proper and biblical. God is into joy for eternity. I'll end with these words from C.S. Lewis. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. Now, at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. Now, you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? Well, the explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here and putting up an extra floor there, running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Is life hard right now? It is for us. This gives meaning everything. God is doing something through the suffering, through the pain. He is creating something more beautiful that comes through pain and suffering. We call it the gospel.